You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. If you look at investment trends in China, a lot more investment is going into renewable energy development and into electric vehicles. We went past peak coal in China in 2014. Now, no one forecasts that, but it's happened. For January 19th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Much of the commentary about energy transitions to date, including on this show, has largely been about technologies and how we transition from one to another, like moving from coal to renewables. But of course, those transitions are happening in the larger context of our societies, which are strongly influenced by the economic interests of various actors, their political power, aspects of global trade, and the impact of those technologies on the ecological environment. And one way that we can understand those influences is by looking at their histories, as well as their contemporary political economies. But these aspects of the energy transition haven't received nearly as much attention or study. Which is why I was excited to come across a new book titled Power Shift, The Global Political Economy of Energy Transitions by Peter Newell, a researcher at the University of Sussex in the UK. It offers a helpful five-part framework for understanding these facets of the energy transition and draws upon history, academic literature, the author's own experience with renewable energy projects, and other sources to offer some useful insights about the forces that resist energy transition, as well as how to make the energy transition a success, not only in economic terms, but also in terms of environmental and social justice. So I was very pleased to have Peter join us for this conversation, which I believe our listeners will find a refreshing change of pace from our usual fare. Then in the news segment, we'll recognize the latest mileposts in Germany's nuclear phase-out. We'll summarize the objectives in South Korea's new energy transition action plans. We'll update the wrangling over the EU's sustainable finance taxonomy. We'll note a startling change of stance toward coal in India. And we'll muse on the implications of the December 30 fire near Boulder, Colorado. And now our conversation with Peter Newell, recorded January 5, 2022. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Peter, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks very much. Today we're going to talk about your new book, Power Shift, The Global Political Economy of Energy Transitions. And I think we should begin by simply explaining what the term political economy means. How do you define it? Yes, and it gets defined in lots of different ways. And I guess like most terms in social sciences, it means different things to different people. And there are different strands of more liberal or critical political economy. But essentially... It focuses on the organisation of production, consumption and exchange in an economy. But rather than look at that as a purely market phenomena, as economists might, it also tries to bring in issues of power, politics, governance and questions of justice. So really, if you say what are key political economy questions, they are who gets what, how and why. And so embodied in that is some notion of procedural and distributional elements, like who gets consulted, who gets to participate in decision making on things, and how does that then affect who wins and who loses, and in our context, from particular energy pathways. Hmm. Okay, so let's start talking about the book. You open the book by saying that climate change presents a legitimacy crisis for contemporary global capitalism, in part because it highlights tensions and contradictions inherent to industrialism. So what are these intentions and contradictions? Yeah, there are a number of them. And I deliberately use that term industrialism to say that this isn't just about capitalism. 
There's something peculiar to the relationship between capitalism and energy. But more broadly, this isn't just about, well, if everything was state controlled, if everything was public, things would be that much better in terms of sustainability or our ability to tackle the climate crisis. So if the economic system is a productionist one, which is always about expanding energy supply and demand to feed infinite economic growth, many of the problems would still be the same. So that's why I use this term industrialism rather than just capitalism per se. But some of the contradictions and tensions that I allude to in the book and which I address are firstly around how do you maintain required levels of growth in an industrialist or capitalist system whilst trying to safeguard a climate system fit for human existence. And it's hard in many ways to see how the conventional pursuit of growth would be compatible with trying to keep warming below two or three degrees. And of course, it's often only been in moments of financial crisis, in other words, a downturn in the economy, when global demand for electricity and energy has fallen. Now, of course, we see these pockets of delinking in specific sectors, and there is evidence of decarbonisation, but we also know that we're not bending the overall curve. And that's partly because of Jevons' paradox, effectively, that where energy does get saved, often money and finance gets reinvested in more consumption and therefore that outweighs the overall effect of incremental gains. And so we need to move a little bit beyond this sort of what I call plug and play approach where you might develop different energy technologies or different energy sources, but you're not really displacing existing ones and you're ignoring the need to radically reduce consumption and plan energy, transport, industrial systems in more sustainable ways. So that's one of the key things is around this relationship between growth and energy. But another one is around labour, the ways in which the current economy ties the sort of welfare of workers to an unsustainable energy economy, in this case, a fossil fuel dependent one. And of course, that induces a lot of resistance from trade unions or other actors to more ambitious climate action. And that creates another sort of tension or problem that needs to be resolved. And we see that in discussions around just transitions, where you'll get incumbent industries working with trade union organisations to try and slow down the pace of decarbonisation, invoking sometimes entirely legitimate concerns about jobs and worker welfare, but it does have the effect of potentially slowing down ambitious action. And another key contradiction I focus on is this, how do we deal with the historical responsibility of richer countries for climate change and the need to accommodate the legitimate rising energy demands of poorer parts of the world? And what that would mean in terms of a global deal is far more radical reductions in consumption in the global north. And that's very, very hard to square with the ways in which our economies are currently organised to try and constantly expand production and consumption. So those are just a few of the sort of big tensions and contradictions that I see, which I think make it very hard for us in the economy we have to progress more just transitions. So whilst you might get decarbonisation, you're unlikely to get decarbonisation plus social justice. Right. Okay. So that's a very helpful bit of context. And I think I think it's fair to say that climate change and certainly the energy transition does present a challenge to industrialism and to the way that global capitalism is currently constituted, although I still think that there's opportunity here to yeah. bend it in the direction of working for energy transition. Yeah. But we'll talk about that. So you structure the book into five major sections, and I'd like to talk through them, starting with theorizing energy transitions. You explain how much of the energy transition literature to date has focused on certain technological shifts, like moving from coal to renewables, or on socio-technical transitions where the focus is on the sociology and the economics of science and technology. You argue that we also need to consider the context of these transitions, including political economy, political power, 
geopolitics, history, trade, and ecology. So why is it important to emphasize these sort of contextual facets of energy transitions? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen increasing intention in recent years to some of these questions of governance, politics, and power in transition studies, and that's to be welcome, and it's important, and it helps us to think about issues of disruption or regime destabilization, as it's sometimes called, and that's a key part of trying to roll back the power of dominant incumbent actors, obviously largely in the fossil fuel economy at the moment, as well as create opportunities for niches um, to, to move towards a lower carbon economy. But in this book, I make the argument that it's power that needs to shift if we're to successfully address this crisis. In other words, it's not for the lack of good technologies or pricing mechanisms that we're facing climate chaos. It's the concentration of power in actors and institutions that benefit from unsustainability and over whom we have limited control. And that manifests itself in the power over production and finance, technology and institutions but also power within and between nations, among social groups, the power of capital over labour and states over citizens. And so essentially what I'm trying to suggest is that without shifts in these things, the technologies may change, the markets might look different, but the roots of the current crisis in an unsustainably organised global political economy will remain untouched. So again, going back to what I was just saying, we might get accelerated decarbonisation, but without either social justice or deeper sustainability. And so I think we need a more historical account to come back to that part of your question, because we want to understand what parallels and precedents are there. Clearly, on one level, we're in uncharted terrain. But there are ways in which production and finance have been disrupted. We've had waves of creative destruction in the past. And it's important to look back and try and learn lessons about how can we accelerate energy transitions, what's required for those to unfold in progressive and accelerated ways. The political questions, of course, pose issues around what transition to what and on whose terms, who is it that gets to establish political pathways towards a lower carbon economy and whose voices are included in those. So that's why I draw out those sorts of issues. I draw in the global elements because these transitions are happening simultaneously around the world in ways which have impacts on one another. So how we in the UK are pursuing decarbonisation has an impact elsewhere in the world. If we're going for electrification and a big rollout of EV cars, that has implications for extraction of lithium or cobalt in other parts of the world, for example. So we have to look at the international relations, if you like, of energy transitions, how transitions are coexisting and co-evolving over time. And the ecological dimension is often missing. Of course, some disciplines pay far more attention to that, but all energy transitions are ecological in terms of resource extraction, throughput, exchange, the waste economies associated with them. And those things need to be taken seriously. So that's why I'm trying to draw in some of those ecological, global, political elements that you alluded to. Great. That's very helpful. So the next chapter, Producing Energy Transitions, emphasizes how the productive capacity of a region and its natural resources can influence its potential for transition as well as its inherent favorability or resistance to energy transition. The fossil fuel industry offers ample examples of this aspect of political economy because it stands to lose from the energy transition, or as you put it in the book, more decentralized and less resource-intensive systems of energy generation, transmission, and distribution threaten the power and networks of established actors. 
And I've often said on this show that energy transition will make winners and losers, and we shouldn't be shy about acknowledging that. So I completely agree with that point. But you go on to talk about how energy modeling techniques, like the integrated assessment models used by the IPCC or the growth and cost curve modeling done by agencies like the EIA and IEA, can be influenced by the business interests of incumbencies and thus delay the progress of energy transition. Now, we've done a whole series of shows about the IPCC's modeling framework, as well as several shows about the IEA's modeling, so I think our listeners would be interested in your thoughts on this, or what you call the discursive support to incumbents. Sure. I guess what this gets to for me is how central knowledge politics are to transitions in general and energy transitions in particular. It throws up these questions around whose knowledge counts, which people are thought to be the experts and given epistemic power over policy. And it invites us to think about, you know, which assumptions are being made about business as usual, about growth, around behaviour change, historical precedents, the ways in which technologies get taken up and rolled out, and what's politically realistic. So if we're trying to advance transformative systemic change, which of course is what the IPCC says is necessary to combat the climate crisis, it's vital to expose all of these assumptions to critical scrutiny. And I think this is happening now. We're seeing UNEP and the Stockholm Environment Institute producing their own report on the production gap because that was seen to be something that wasn't being adequately paid attention to. In other words, the mismatch between planned fossil fuel extraction and ambitions to keep global warming below 1.5 or 2 degrees. Likewise, we've seen in the latest UN emissions gap report more attention to behaviour change because that wasn't thought to be adequately covered in the models and yet potentially has a key role to play in driving decarbonisation. And then most recently, of course, we've seen the IEA finally developing a net zero pathway which importantly and interestingly suggested there's no need for new investment in fossil fuel supply. But that only came after a long and protected civil society campaigns to say, we need to take this seriously. We need to model what this alternative looks like that is in line with the Paris Agreement. Indeed. So yeah, and also around what's politically realistic is business as usual realistic if we're in a world drifting towards two and a half or three degrees. It invites those questions about for whom is that realistic? Certainly not for people on the front line of climate impact. So for me, yeah, these questions about the politics of knowledge run through all of this. Okay, so conversely, might we not expect these aspects of political economy to work in favor of renewables as the energy transition proceeds? Wouldn't the political power of the winners of energy transition increase, even as that of its losers diminishes, both at the industry level and at the geopolitical level? For example, we just did a long two-part interview in episodes 162 and 163, in which our guest highlighted how Russia is determined to cling to its fossil fuel resources and income, while its neighbor, China, is eagerly embracing the energy transition by becoming the solar module manufacturer for the world. So it's not hard to see how this same kind of dynamic could engender a huge shift of political power from Russia to China, is it? Yeah, I mean, from what I see, most countries are now hedging their bets, even those such as Middle Eastern states, which are obviously heavily dependent on oil, or China and India are doing the same. They're still using coal domestically, but establishing themselves as major exporters of wind and solar globally. Mm. And I'm seeing similar discussions among so-called new producers in Africa, countries that have recently discovered reserves of oil or coal. And don't want to be left with stranded assets and recognise that external finance from donors or multilateral development banks um, is starting to dry up. So 
I see a lot of these key actors, of course, they still want to extract every last bit of oil or coal that they can, but they are also turning their attention to other energy sources and trying to diversify to minimise some of the risks. So if Russia does decide not to diversify, but to extract every last drop of gas, it may end up making itself more vulnerable. But of course, and this is the political part of it, by the time that happens, President Putin will probably be out of office. Indeed. In fact, that's pretty much the argument that our guest in that episode made, was that they're running a very serious risk here of finding themselves very much on the back foot as the energy transition really accelerates. And I do take your point about other countries that have resources that they could still exploiter that they still would like to extract some value from. But this kind of goes back to the general point of your book, I think, which is that we should understand that these countries are not taking sort of a neutral, dispassionate approach to understanding what climate change action requires or what sort of action they should be taking in terms of taking action on energy transition. Rather, they're just exploiting their resources for their own economic self-interest. And it's very simple and sort of banal that way. I think that's right. But of course, the geopolitics of this and the economics of energy sources and technologies and what's available are always changing. And so governments need to be alert to those shifts and try to constantly reposition themselves. And I see that there's this constant struggle over energy pathways. I mean, we see it here in the UK, we see it in many other countries where You'll have you know, the renewable lobby, there's the gas lobby, but there's even discussions in the UK right now about a new coal mine in Cumbria or about oil exploration. So all of these things are intention and there's different actors and interests associated with those and some are better connected to governments than others. And this is precisely why I think it's so important to look at the power and the politics and whose interests weigh most heavily, who has most influence and what can be done about that, because we do need shifts in those power relations if we are going to accelerate the process of decarbonising the energy system. That just amazes me that they're actually considering a new coal mine in in Canberra. I mean, (laughs) for the longest time, for decades, I don't know, a century probably, there was this long-running joke about bringing coals to Newcastle. And now you sort of have to because... Newcastle isn't producing coal and the UK isn't using any coal power for months at a time now. How would that make sense on any level? Yeah. No, well, it doesn't, I don't think. But they'll argue that there's jobs potential there and that there's money to be made. This is coal for steel. And if we don't use coal, you know, we haven't yet got green hydrogen or alternatives. And Mm. there's a whole range of arguments that they try to use. But it's frightening, actually. And, and in a year in which we were hosting the COP summits to even be having that conversation right. at the very time that you're trying to persuade other countries to leave coal in the ground, right. it didn't help our leadership ambitions. Let's just say that. Yeah. All right. So in your discussions on the international relations of energy, you say, quote, deliberate and active oversight of solar in favor of nuclear in the U.S., despite the findings of its own task force and the obvious benefits for LDCs, is explained in relation to the dependence it propagates on Western technology. How does access to and control over technology within and between countries affect the technological paths we choose? Because I think this particular case that you've mentioned here of a deliberate emphasis on nuclear instead of solar in the U.S. is not a story that's been well told. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. 
When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In accordance with its long-standing nuclear phase-out plan, Germany shut down three of its last six nuclear power stations on January 1st. The remaining three plants will be turned off by the end of 2022. In 2021, the six nuclear power plants contributed around 12% of Germany's electricity production, with renewables providing around 41%, coal around 28%, and gas roughly 15%. Even with the nuclear phase-out, Germany aims to meet 80% of its power demand with renewables by 2030, primarily by increasing increasing its wind and solar power generation. Item 2. On December 10, 2021, South Korea unveiled its first detailed action plans to achieve carbon neutrality. The plans include shutting down 24 of its 53 coal-fired power stations by 2034 and eliminating coal-fired power entirely. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show. Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant. And Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.